Our text this morning is Genesis 13, and we're looking at two different life paths epitomized in two men, Abraham and Lot. If you look at your bulletin outline, you'll see the first point. I have it listed as the burden of excessive wealth. One would have thought that Pharaoh would have been so ticked off with Abraham and Sarah lying and deceiving him that he would have taken back the dowry that he paid Abram in anticipation of marrying the woman he had been told was Abraham's sister. Look at chapter 12, verse 16. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, maid servants, camels. In other words, this is a great dowry that Pharaoh is paying for the privilege of marrying Sarah. But instead, Pharaoh sent Abraham packing with all this wealth that he had acquired in Egypt. He didn't take it back. Chapter 12, verse 20, Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Well, okay, what was it that Abraham had? Chapter 13, first two verses. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And we further observe, verse 5, Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So, nephew Lot has cashed in on Pharaoh's magnanimous generosity to Uncle Abram. You got two men here. They go down to Egypt. They spend some time there. They come back very, very wealthy. So, that's the first problem. Both Abraham and Lot were wealthy men, and their wealth was in the same commodity. Look at verse 5. Flocks and herds, that's sheep and cattle, or sheep and oxen, both of which require huge acreage of pasture land to support. We sometimes think, well, if only I had $200,000 in my bank account, all my problems would be solved. Wrong. Some problems would be solved, but others would be exacerbated. Look at verse 6. The land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. So that's the first problem. There was so much livestock owned by Abram and Lot that the pasture land was insufficient to feed the animals. Now I went on the internet this week and did a little checking in an, on an agricultural site, government site, as to what kind of acreage is needed to support livestock. Here's what I found out. If you have 100 sheep, just a just 100, 100 sheep, you need 30 acres. For 11 cows, you need 20 acres. This is just grazing now. 
100 sheep, 30 acres, 11 cows, 20 acres. And if we use Job's ranch, so what are you bringing Job in? Job was a contemporary of Abraham, did you know that? He was. But if you bring in what he owned, another, it says in the scripture, he was the wealthiest man in the east, Job chapter 1. Let me give you a picture here. He had 7,000 sheep. So, finding out what I did this week, that would be 2,100 acres you would need to graze 7,000 sheep. He had 500 yoke of oxen. A yoke is two, so that's 1,000 oxen. That's another 1,820 acres he would need for them. The total for the sheep and the cows, or the oxen, would be 3,920 acres in order to be able to graze them. That is 6.12 square miles to graze that many animals. Now, we don't know how many sheep and cattle Abraham had, nor do we know what Lot had. But what we do know is that these two ranchers had so many animals that the pasture land was inadequate to properly graze so large a herd. Whatever the number was, it was too many. So the first problem is caused by the fact that they're very wealthy, but they're wealthy in the same commodity. They're both ranchers. They're both shepherds. And so that's the problem. But there's a second problem, verse 7. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. Genesis 13, verse 7. Well, the inevitable happened. Each one of these patriarchs had their own household of servants that helped to manage the livestock. Lot had his, Abraham had his. But a kind of... Uh, Rivalry arose between the servants. Now again, because the pasture land only went so far and both families believed that the land should go to them. So both sets of servants had tunnel vision and tunnel vision is usually selfish vision. It sees only what it wants to see and dismisses the needs of others that are in the peripheral vision while looking only out for oneself. Aggravating these things all the more is Moses' observation, verse 7. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. Now what that means is that Abraham and Lot were aliens living in a land where they were viewed as foreigners. So not only did their livestock tax the little bit of grazing pasture available, their livestock infringed on the pastures of the native residents. There was the potential then for hostilities to arise with the local folk. Years later in the time of Isaac now, this would be Abraham's son, it says in the scripture that Isaac became rich and his wealth continued to grow and he became very wealthy he had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. Genesis 26, verse 13. And the context tells us that the Philistines would fill the water wells that were dug in Abraham's day, they would fill them with dirt so that Isaac would not have water to feed his 
livestock. The tension became so great that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, told Isaac, move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. Genesis 26, verse 16. So Isaac complied. He moved his livestock to Gerar. But thereafter, every time Isaac dug or reopened a well, the Philistines would argue that the water was theirs. You see, water rights, as well as grazing rights, very, very important if you have a large animal herd to feed. No water, no survival of the livestock. Could this not be then an issue with the Canaanites and the Perizzites, verse 7, of our text. Something has to be done. Lot and Abraham are there, and they're utilizing the land that is presently occupied by others. Now that brings us to point two, Abraham's reasonable and generous solution to the tension. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Verse 8 and verse 9. Let me ask, to whom did God promise the land? Genesis 12, verse 6 and following. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moriah at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanite were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring will I give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name. Lord. The land was <coughs> excuse me, the land was given, promised by God to Abram. What claim did Lot have on the land? None. What was Lot in reference to Abram? His nephew. The son of his brother Haran, chapter eleven, verse thirty one. Haran had died in Ur before Terah. Abram's father moved the family to Haran, where he died. This is a different Haran, by the way. Where he died in chapter 11, verse 32. So this left Lot an orphan with both his father and his grandfather, now dead. That doesn't mean he's a little kid. Now, this is a full-grown man. Abraham is 75 when he sets out from Ur of the Chaldees. So the nephew's probably in his 50s. Late 40s, 50s, something like that. So that's the case as they leave her of the Chaldees. And Abram graciously, though I must say disobediently, permitted Lot to tag along to Canaan and later to Egypt and back. He was to leave his relatives behind and just go by himself, but he didn't do that. Now what do we see? There's tension. There is hostilities between Lot's herdsmen and Abram's. Abram knew, Abram knew it wouldn't be long before he and Lot would be at each other's throats. And so he posed a plan to separate. But it was more than, uh, well, you go here and I'll go there. No, Abram issued no predetermined directive to Lot. 
It said he offered Lot first pick of the land. Can you believe this? Verse 9. Is not the whole land before what? Me? No. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't Abram know that his livestock are in jeopardy of dying from hunger and from thirst? Doesn't he realize that as the person God called out of Ur, that God has given him the land for his own possession and his own use? What can he be thinking? Lot has been like an albatross for many years, hanging around Abraham's neck, taking advantage of Abraham's generosity and kind spirit, and presuming upon his good nature to include him in God's prosperity. Like a leech, Lot has been sucking the lifeblood of God's promises to Abraham for himself. Couldn't Abraham see this injustice? Doesn't he know this about his nephew by now? I mean, we're talking years have passed there. I'm sure he did see it. I'm sure he did. But he also saw something else, verse 8. Let's not have any quarrels between you and me for, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we, we are brothers. We are brothers. You say, well, I thought Haran was Abraham's brother, and Nahor, to name another, Genesis 11, verse 27. Well, yeah, they were his blood relatives, his blood brothers, but Abraham is not referring to such filial family ties. Instead, he's talking of Lot as his spiritual brother, his brother in the faith. He's talking about the family of God and the position each of them hold as believers and followers of God. We are to conduct ourselves with one another in God's family in a totally different manner than the world would handle such matters among themselves. Paul rebuked the Corinthian brethren who were filing lawsuits of all things, lawsuits against one another and using the secular courts to plead their case. Here's what he says. One brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 6 through 8. Boy, has that been repeated in history time and time again. Does Abram share the pasture land with Lot? No. Is he under obligation to parcel out the land and to give Lot first pick? No. Couldn't he point to the Negev, the southern part of Palestine, and tell Lot, hit the road, Jack? Yes. Will he do that? No. Why won't he do that? Because pain in the neck and all, and leech that he may be, 
Lot is Abraham's brother in the faith. And Abraham would rather err on the side of generosity and peace than to have a falling out with a brother. So Abraham swallows his pride. If that were an issue, I don't know. He makes no demands based on the covenant promises of God. He refuses to claim his rights and he kills any animosity dead in its tracks by preferring Lot and his choice of homestead over his own. You choose. The whole land's before you. And whatever you choose, I'll just do the opposite. Brethren, this is the first path in disputes. And it's the godly path. And Abraham took it with Lot. It's the path of love. And it's the path of kindness. It's the path of generosity. And it's the path willing to suffer loss. Not standing on your rights, but willing to suffer loss if it will keep the peace. It's a wonderful path. It's the preferred path. I might add, it's not the easy path. It's the hard path. Now that brings us to Lot's pathway of choice. And I kind of summarized it there in the first sentence. Lot's path was an exercise in self-preservation, selfishness, and self-degradation. Everything we're going to see here in this path is a spiral downward. What is the first? He looked longingly toward Sodom. The whole land's before you, you Jews. Verse 10. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, that's Eden, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Verse 10 and 11. Now there's more here than the sin of greed. There is, there, there is the sin of greed. He chooses the whole plain of the Jordan. That's what? Well, that ran from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. And it gutted the central part of Palestine. And he didn't even blush to claim all of that for himself. Oh, let's see. I'll just take the old Jordan Valley. What was he thinking? Verse 10. He was thinking of all that water. Mm. Amply available for his livestock. He was thinking of the lush Fruit and crops characteristic of both Eden, the Garden of God, and Egypt with its Nile tributary giving life and greenery to an otherwise desert sand. And he thought, you know, my livestock will flourish there. I will not have to dig wells or rely on them to water my animals. This, this will be easy. I like easy. I choose easy. 
so he did. You know, the eye gate is a powerful vehicle that Satan uses to lure people into making sinful choices. Verse 10, Lot looked up and he saw. Now he's in the heights of Bethel, so that's in the mountains. I'm thinking he had a great vantage point. He looked up and he saw. And that's all it took to feed his propensity towards greed. Of David, we read one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. 2 Samuel 11, verse 2 and 3. And that resulted in what? Adultery, the murder of Uriah, the death of the child that was conceived by God's judgment, and a division of his kingdom all because of this eye gate. He looked and he acted upon what he saw. Have we forgotten the lesson of our first parents? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Genesis 3. The Apostle John gives us this warning. Do not love the world. And don't love anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and what he does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Lot did not heed this warning. His eyes fed his greed and he, he, he just had to have what he saw. Well, Abraham said, you choose. So I'm choosing. I'll take the whole Next, Lot lived among the cities of the plain. I'm reading scripture, verse 12. He lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. Let me ask, why just near Sodom? Why not take up residence in Sodom? Well, Lot, like so many professing Christians in our day, would have known how to answer. Verse 13. I do not live in Sodom because the men of Sodom are wicked and are sinning greatly against the Lord. Oh, wow, what a good answer. What a biblical answer. Biblical. Lot thought as we do. I know my limitations. <laughs> I know right from wrong. I know Sodom is sin city, that there's all kinds of immorality and lawlessness in the streets, but, you know, it also affords a certain amount of advantage, too. You can't forget that. I mean, there's, there's the art museum, there's the fine restaurants, there's the magnificent public fountains and, and pools, 
There's the concert hall and the theaters and the sports arena. Can't deny. And we think, may I not enjoy these advantages and still not get swept away in Sodom's lifestyle? Yes, that's possible for a person whose devotion to God is first and foremost. Speaking for myself, I enjoy a fine symphony performance as well as the next man or a visit to the art museum. Don and I have toured the art museum in Toledo twice since we've been out here. But even these pose a danger if we allow these likes to becloud our thinking. If we make allowances, let's say, for pornography, which the world calls art, if we make allowances for acid hard rock, which glorifies illicit sex, drug abuse, and even certain crimes, and calls that music, when there is little or no discernment in these matters, the third step of degradation is sure to follow. Genesis 14 verse 12 says that when a federation of kings came against Sodom and captured its people, Lot, and I'm reading scripture now, Lot was living in Sodom. See, that's another step down. First he pitches his tent towards Sodom. Now he's living in Sodom. Really? Peter tells us that God rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. 2 Peter 2, verse 7, verse 8. That's true. But he lived there nonetheless, didn't he? Lot was like so many of the house hunters portrayed on the international version of uh, Home and Garden TV. We watch that. They want an apartment or they want a condo in the big cities of Europe or in England somewhere for their retirement. But they want to be where the nightlife is booming, where where the bars and the nightclubs and the wild parties are and every evening event. The cravings of their heart seek to be satiated with the wicked lifestyles of the rich and famous, if only, if only to be near such in the neighborhood. That was Lot. He was tormented by what he saw and by what he heard, but you know what? His wife, his daughters, and their husbands were not tormented by anything. When the trumpet of judgment from God was about to blow, Lot's wife and daughters hesitated, and his wife couldn't, she just couldn't help from taking one last minute peek at the city when the fireballs of judgment were falling. And it cost her, didn't it? And it cost Lot. He started out pitching his tent towards Sodom. And then he was found living in it. 
There's one more stage in his downward spiral. It's found in chapter 19, verse 1, and it tells us that when the death angels arrived in Sodom to destroy it, Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. What does that signify? Well, the gateway was where the magistrates, the judges, the mayor, the other political figures carried on the governmental duties required to run the city and adjudicate disputes between the citizenry. Is where the courts were. When Sarah died in Hebron, Abraham had no place to bury her, so he appealed to the Hittite, Ephron. And we read, Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me, I give you the field. Abraham wanted to buy a field. I give you the cave that is in the field. I give it to you in the presence of my people. What's this? It's a public hearing. And it's a public hearing at the city gates. Abraham, you go, you bury your dead. Genesis 23, verse 10 and 11. Well, Abraham wouldn't take it for free. He paid, paid for the lot. But it was adjudicated at the gate of the city. In Deuteronomy, Moses gave God's law on how to handle idolatry. Take the man or woman who has done this evil deed in your city and take them to the city gate and stone that person to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. And the hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death. And then the hands of all the people would be there too. You must purge this evil from among you. Deuteronomy 17, verses 5 through 7. So, capital punishment for the sin of idolatry was administered at the city gate and many other cities. So what this tells us about Lot is that he had become a government official in the city of Sodom, but he was not respected as such. We know that because when the angelic destroyers came to Lot's house, a mob of men tried to force him to surrender his guests. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. Genesis 19. Sodom's judiciary cared nothing for righteousness, nothing for just decisions. They used their political clout to do as they please, even if what they intended to do was wicked beyond imagination. Lot had made little inroads in turning all that around. <laughs> he was amusing to the Sodomites. He was a farce. When he went to talk to his sons-in-law about fleeing the city because he knew judgment was coming and he wanted to warn them to flee. The scripture says his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Genesis 19 verse 1. 
Lot had chosen a path of compromise, silence on the important issues of life, all to try to maintain his wealth and his lifestyle. He chose this path, and he ruined himself and his family. Two paths. Now, what lessons do we learn? Number one, like Lot, many foolish Christians choose expediency and self-solutions and build really a house of straw. Did Lot trust God for his future? Answer, no. Did he make his choices based upon faith? No. Instead, he looked through his carnal eyes and he saw what appealed to his flesh and he put his brain power in motion to make his mark on society and build a fortune for his family. He was willing to compromise his faith for the commodities of the world. He was to live, willing to live with the immoral and wicked of society because they, in his mind, could take him to places of success that Uncle Abraham's faith could not. So my question is, what are you willing to compromise to get ahead in our world. Your faith in God, your integrity, your family. The theologian F.B. Meyer observed from this text, how many have stood upon those Bethel heights intent on the same error that took Lot Age after age has poured forth its crowds of young hearts to stand upon an exceeding high mountain whilst before, the before them has been spread all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And the tempter whispering that for one act of obeisance all shall be theirs. In assurance and self-confidence, eager to do the best for themselves, prepared to consider the moralities only insofar as they do not interfere with what they had held to be their main chance in life. Thus have succeeded generations look toward the plains of Sodom from afar. And alas, like Lot, they tried to make stones into bread. They have cast themselves down from the mountainside for angels to catch them. They have knelt before the tempter to find his promise broken, his vision of power an illusion, and the soul beggared forever, whilst the tempter, with hollow laugh, has disappeared, leaving his dupe standing alone in the midst of a desolate wilderness. Wow, what a great observation. What a great observation. The psalmist tells us wherein true blessedness lies. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree that's planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither Whatever he does, prospers. Psalm 1, 1 and 3. Lot took a path 
that ignore every one of these principles. And in the end, nothing he did prospered in God's kingdom. It's a tremendous lesson to us in our day because the world with its allurements is still there. <coughs> Satan uses the eye gate still the same way. The second lesson here is the truth that we need to beware of rationalization. What do I mean by that? Beware of claiming a certain course of action because God is in it when in fact the only one in it is you. This happens all the time in Christian circles. I can hear it all now. Lot looking down from Bethel, the house of God, and thinking, I, I, I know Sodom and, and the cities of the plain are inhabited by, by wicked people, but after all, those, those people need the witness of the gospel too. Hmm, yeah, that's quite true. Those wicked people did need to hear the gospel. But Lot was not thinking of witnessing the gospel. <laughs> His actions did everything for himself, nothing for God. His heart was set on personal prosperity, preservation, and opulent living, and prestige among the people of the world, and easy street. That's what he was thinking about. And you know that it is always easier to fit in with the world than to stand in opposition against it. That's why we don't stand with it. We take easy street. This is the first place in the Bible which mentions wealth. First place. Wealthy Abraham, wealthy Lot. But each man handled this grace of God differently. Abraham managed his livestock and his holdings for God. Lot managed the same for himself. Abraham was content. Lot was greedy. Abraham was a faithful steward of God's gifts. Lot represents a person who's obsessed by his possessions. And he lost them all, including his wife and the judgment on Sodom. He's an example of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians as he spoke on the need to be careful how one builds on God's foundation. Here's what Paul wrote. Speaking of the builder, it's building on God's foundation. His work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, day is capitalized in the text because it's speaking of judgment day, the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only, only as one escaping through the flames. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13 through 15. This was Lot. It was Lot. And this is also misguided believers in our day. He rationalized that the path he traveled would all work out in the end. 
that it will all somehow please God. The path you travel, is that what you're thinking? It will all work out in the end? Will that be enough for you? When you stand before Christ, will it be enough to boast that you did not lose the one talent that he gave you? I mean, you buried it. You still have it. But you're unable to say that you put his gifts to work for his glory and have doubled your stewardship through faithfulness. My charge to you this morning is my charge to myself. Be brutally honest about the paths you set for yourself to walk in this life and choose wisely. Don't rationalize. Well, you know, I'm going to go here, do that. It's for God. I'm doing this for God. Really, are you? Or is this for moi? Lot rationalized. Costly. Just think about it. All of his livestock. All of his servants. We're going to see him later on in life. He's got one more step lower to go. All of his servants. His wife. Saved, yes, Second Peter, saved, but his name was broken. Like the song says, they just kind of escaped through the fire. Don't get too close to Lot. You'll smell the destruction on his clothes, on his life. They lost it all. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and appointed, appointed, appointed lessons in the life of Lot and Abraham. Lot thought he was choosing good for his family. He went on easy street. He moved into Sodom, place of wickedness. While he did not participate in that wickedness, his soul was vexed by what he saw and heard every day. Peter tells us, and still he stayed. He stayed. It did affect him. It affected him in this way, that he made poor choices. And he lost his testimony. There was no testimony. There was no witness of the gospel. His sons-in-laws laughed at him. They thought he was joking. wife longingly looked back to what she considered to be home and love and was judged accordingly. Lord, how many of us have chosen wrong paths? What can we do? Well, we need to turn about right now. We need to get off that path. Get back on the path of righteousness and back on the path of trusting God. Not our own wits, not our own know-how, but to trust Him for all that He sends our way. Deliver us from the folly of Lot. Grant us the faith of Abraham, for we pray this for your glory and our good.